Well, I have the joy of drawing pictures for you this morning. And so if Robin, if you could pull that up, I just want to remind you, uh, we are in this series called Revision, and what the elders of Christ the King Church are seeking to do is, the elders are seeking to shepherd our church towards a, a much more clear aim, why we exist as a church. And last week, uh, we talked about conviction number one. There's this, this little booklet that we're working through together. It's from a book called The Vine Project, Phase One, Sharpening Your Convictions. And last week, I drew a picture for you about conviction number one, why make disciples? And so it went something like this. Remember that our God is a triune God that came right out of Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. God the Father who ordains salvation, God the Son who accomplishes salvation, and God the Holy Spirit who applies salvation, who is our seal, our guarantee, guarantor of what Jesus has done on our behalf. So God's plan is a triune plan. And then... I wanted you to see that God's plan is a big plan. It's a plan for the fullness of time. God is moving all people over all time towards a designated end that we are representing by a big old throne, as in the throne of judgment, as in Matthew 25, where all people will gather, be, gather before King Jesus, and he will separate all people from all time as his sheep from the goats. So God is moving all people from all time in this great big plan of his. In fact, what I wanted you to see last week is that God is working out this plan right now. In between I told you of this plan last week and this week, God for sure has been at work all throughout the world. I also wanted you to see that this plan was a Christocentric plan, that specifically the cross of Jesus Christ is at the center of this plan. Remember that this plan for the fullness of time, God intended to unite all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. It's through the cross of Jesus Christ that God pours out an extraordinary grace, a grace that changes people dramatically. It changes the direction they live. So at the cross of Jesus Christ, God does something amazing through the, Christ, the death of Christ. That, that payment Jesus made, that, that act of redemption, he called it a ransom for many. So this plan is a triune plan, it's a big plan, it's a Christocentric plan. By the way, we also know that Jesus is the creator and that Jesus is the judge. <laughs> and so he's the creator, redeemer, and judge. But we also know that this plan is a people-moving plan. That God, for the fullness of time, is moving people to the cross, Right now, there are millions of people living in, that's no, in the domain of darkness. And they are <laughs> running away from the throne. 
They, 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 they're not interested in, in following Jesus. They're, they're not interested in bringing glory and praise and honor to our God. I was numbered among them, and so were you. We were living self-centered lives for this present age. We were thinking that we had all right to determine our own lives. We were living by the rule of self-determination. And then this phenomenal act of grace, God intersects our lives. He, he gives us ears to hear of what Jesus has done at the cross 2,000 years later. And so what God does in glorious fashion, through the grace of God, he calls us to the cross, and then it's by this amazing grace poured out in an extraordinary way at the cross, he flips us. He transforms us from living in the domain of darkness, self-centered, self-determined lives. And he makes us new people. And now we are living for him. We are moving towards Jesus. He's called us to be his disciples. This extraordinary grace poured out at the cross results in a radical discipleship to Jesus. And this is, of course, a glory plan. When God radically changes us by His grace, now we're living for something far bigger than ourselves. We're living for what we were originally created for, the glory of God. And so we, so what God is doing for all time is He is populating heaven with worshipers, people who are around the throne right now singing the praises of God. Salvation belongs to our God who sits upon the throne and to the Lamb. Praise and glory, honor and strength be to our God. That's conviction one. We've got, we've got to be convinced of this. If we're not convinced of God's plan for the fullness of time, do you know what's going to happen? We're going to be convinced of some other plan. Some other plan is going to take his place. We're going to be living for something else. But this is conviction one. God is at work, brothers and sisters. All throughout this week, all throughout the world, God from every tribe, tongue, and nation has been flipping people by his grace through the cross of Jesus, making them disciples of Jesus. That's the intro. Conviction two. What... What is a disciple? What is a disciple of Jesus Christ? It's a very basic question, right? And we can't assume that everyone in this room is sharing the same answer to that question. Because some people think that a disciple of Jesus Christ is like someone who accepted Jesus into their heart when they were three years old, but it's not living a life of discipleship to Jesus? Or we can think that to be a disciple is to be in a one-on-one -on -one mentoring relationship with an older Christian. We think of discipleship in terms of programs. Or we can think that discipleship, a disciple of Jesus is, is one of the elite followers of Jesus. Those elite people who go into full-time ministry. They're kind of the real deal, the SEAL Team 6 of followers of Jesus. We need to turn to Jesus. 
Jesus, what do you say a disciple is? How does Jesus answer the question, what is a disciple? And so this morning, we're going to turn to Mark chapter 8, and we're going to look at 27 through 38, and we're going to look at this kind of nice section of God's Word to look to Jesus and to learn from Him what a true disciple is from His lips. So here's what this is going to do for us. First, it's going to give us as a church a shared definition and description of what a disciple of Jesus really is. So we, at one point, as a church, we can say, okay, we're all on the same page of what a disciple is now. Secondly, what that'll do is help each of us assess our lives in light of what Jesus says a disciple is. So all of us this morning need to ask a very basic question. When we hear what Jesus says is a disciple, each of us needs to ask, am am I that kind of disciple? Have I responded to that call? That, all of that call. Thirdly, what this will do is, it's going to help us move forward as a church. Because think of your life groups as, as packs of 21st disciples, century disciples following Jesus together. And so when we have a common definition of what a disciple is, now we can help each other move towards Jesus together. And finally, this is going to help us know how to call people who are outside of the church, living in darkness right now, what we must say to them so that they too can become followers of Jesus. So if you would, please, if you haven't already, open your Bibles to Mark chapter 8, verses 27 through 38. I'm going to read this for us. Hear God's word. This is the very words of God. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And Jesus asked his disciples, but who do you say, who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And Jesus strictly charged them to tell no one about him. That's interesting. Verse 31, and he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, Jesus rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, Jesus said to them, If anyone would come after me, here it is, he is now defining what a disciple is. If anyone would come after me, he, for if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. 
For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father and with the holy angels. May God bless the the speaking and hearing of his words. This morning I want to walk you through kind of four steps, four points. You'll see it on your bulletin. Now I know the font on the back of your bulletin is really small. If you just want to listen and follow along, that's fine. But I'm going to make four moves so that we can answer the question, so we can hear Jesus answer the question, what is a disciple? First, we see in this passage a Q&A with Jesus, a question and answer time with Jesus. Verses 27 through 30, Jesus says, brought his disciples to Caesarea Philippi. They've been working together for some time. His, his disciples have been seeing Jesus do amazing things. And, and you've got to know that Caesarea Philippi, th- this is like worship center. There was the worship of Baal that took place in Caesarea Philippi, the, the worship of Pan, the worship of Caesar. It was the Roman cult city. So it's very interesting that Jesus would turn to his disciples and say, in this town of worship, who are are people saying that I am? He's asking his disciples what other people think. It's like he's taking a poll. And and his disciples respond in verse 28, well, some people think that you're John the Baptist. Other people are saying that you're Elijah. Some others are saying you're one of the other prophets. These are the heavy hitters leading up to Jesus so far. And then Jesus gets to where he wants to get to. In verse 29, he asks his disciples, who do you say that I am? Before we go any further, imagine that you're in Caesarea Philippi and that Jesus is asking you that question. Who do you say that Jesus is? When we talk about discipleship to Jesus, we must begin with Jesus. Who do you say that Jesus is? In verse 29, Peter says, you're the Christ. Ding, 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 ding. He's almost right. Because Jesus, look how he answers, and he strictly charged them, to tell no one about him. That's kind of surprising. So if Peter were right, Jesus is the Christ, wouldn't Jesus want him to declare that to everybody? Why is Jesus putting the hush on his disciples after they've said something apparently true, that he's the Christ? Well, what we're going to see is that Jesus knows that Peter and the disciples, they don't have a full understanding of what the Christ has come to do. And so that brings me to the second point, an important messianic clarification. Jesus 
in verse 31, is seeking to correct his disciples in a misunderstanding of the Christ. You've got to be clear on who Jesus the Christ is in order to know how to respond to him. And so, here's what I want you to see right now. In verse 29, Peter says, you are the Christ. And then in verse 31, Mark summarizes what Jesus says. He says, and he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer, and he must be rejected and be killed and three days rise again. And so what Jesus is doing is he's using a title, Son of Man, to, that equals the title Christ. It's just two different ways of saying the Messiah. And so if you look in your Bible in Mark chapter 9, verse 31, Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he's killed after three days, he will rise. And then if you flip the page, chapter 10, verse 33, Jesus says, see, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days, he will rise. Jesus is making a clarification on the Christ, the Son of Man. If you flip back on your Bibles to Jan Daniel chapter 7. Um, if you kind of flip to the middle of your Bible and you're in the psalm, just start going right. Uh, go past Jeremiah and Ezekiel and you will find Daniel. Daniel chapter 7, Daniel has these night visions. And in verse 13 and 14 we read this. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him, and to him, the son of man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is not an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So when Peter's thinking about the Christ, he's thinking, uh-huh, here comes the dominion, baby. The Christ is coming to knock out Rome. We're going to get our nation back. And Jesus is saying, the Christ didn't come to establish his kingdom that way. Not by force, not by war horse. Jesus is saying, I have come, the Christ has come, the Son of Man has come to establish his kingdom through suffering, rejection, being killed, and being raised from the dead. Here's why this is significant. Robin, would you pull up the, uh, that masterpiece of art? Remember, the cross is at the center of it all. The cross is the thing by which God poured out his grace to accomplish his unifying purposes. The Christ did you see that word must? The Christ must suffer. 
in order to fill, fulfill God's big plan for all time, to establish his kingdom in his everlasting dominion. It had to happen this way. You see, the cross is central to God's plan of making disciples of all nations. It must happen. It's a very important messianic clarification. It's at the cross that God's power is poured out, and it's that gracious power that, that delivers a sinner living in the domain of darkness and transfers and transforms that sinner into a saint, a child of God, living in the kingdom of light. What's interesting is in verse 32, Peter rebukes Jesus. Uh, Jesus, you don't want to be talking like that. You've got a crowd here, Jesus. Don't miss it. You don't really mean that, do you, Jesus? You're not going to be crucified. You're not going to be killed. And then Jesus rebukes Peter. He says, get behind me, Satan. Satan's the deceiver, the distorter. And he says, Peter, you don't have the things of God on your mind. You've got the things of man. You know what Peter was doing? Peter was wanting to be, wanting Jesus to be the Christ of his own liking. He wanted the Christ to be, to be the deliverer of, of his preference. This is what we need right now. And Jesus is saying, no, no. The Christ has come to establish his kingdom by forgiving people, by transforming people, by a powerful work of his grace. It's a very important messianic clarification. And by the way, Jesus doesn't reject what we read in Daniel chapter 7, 13 through 14. That shows up in verse 38. When Jesus comes back in glory. We've seen a Q&A with Jesus. We've seen this important messianic clarification. Discipleship to Jesus must begin with the real Jesus, not the Christ of our own liking or our own likeness. And it's from there that he, that he makes the call. If you look at verse, back in Mark chapter 8, verse 34, he's just rebuked Peter and calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, this is where he answers the question, what is a disciple? And, and this call in verse 34 contains three commands, deny himself, Take up his cross, follow me. They're, com they're commands. They're requirements. And so Jesus says in verse 34, the, the, the invitation goes out to all. If anyone would come after me, let him, better said, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. We've got to be clear 
on what Jesus is saying right here. We all got to get on the same page of what Jesus means by a disciple. So let me give this a shot. Let's, let's take those two commands of this call first. Let him deny himself and take up, take up his cross. When Jesus says he must deny himself, what Jesus is talking about is giving up, renouncing a self-centered way of life that lives for this present world. That's what he's talking about. He, he's talking about you need to renounce, deny a life in which you every morning those living in the domain of darkness, they, they pull up this flag of self, and that flag of self doesn't have like your picture on it. It has things like living for accomplishment, where every morning your people get into this thinking that I'm living for some kind of award or acknowledgement today. I'm, I'm living for a GPA. I'm living for a degree. I'm living for a promotion. I'm living to be right and what it is is some kind of living actually for yourself. And the lie is that this present world is all that there is. Jesus says you need to deny yourself. You've got to deny that. Then Jesus goes on to say, not only do you have to deny yourself, you need to take up your cross. Jesus is speaking this in Caesarea Philippi. Everybody who heard Jesus say this would know exactly they would have a picture in their mind of someone who's been convicted by Rome to death, and after their conviction, they would need to walk the walk of shame to the place of their crucifixion. And do you know what they'd have to be carrying? Their own cross. Rome has come in and said, you do not have any more rights to self-determination. We will determine that for you. If denying yourself is renouncing a self-centered living of your life for this present world, this call to die, this call to take up your cross is laying down your right to self-determination. I call my own shots. I decide where I go. Jesus is not pulling any punches here. And, and, and be clear that these are not suggestions. What he's doing is this call to deny yourself, this call to take up your cross. It is a call to lay down your life for Jesus and it is essential to following Jesus. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who wrote the book Cost of Discipleship, which everybody in the room should have, he is known for saying, when Christ calls a man, he calls him, he bids him come and die. I, I want... I want to help you ask a question right now. And you might be a little embarrassed to ask it yourself, so I'll ask it for you. But let me give you a little kind of humorous kind of account of it first, this particular question. Back in 1992, yours truly was a 20-year-old guy. 
I literally, my, my frontal lobe hasn't been, hadn't been developed yet. So I literally thought in six-hour increments. I'm just thinking six hours out. Well, summer of 1992, I'm in New Jersey with a bunch of other young Christians. We're, we're seeking to follow Jesus together. It, the summer rocked, and I'm living in six-hour increments. And so this is, this is early August, summer of 92. My friend Andy and I, loving the Lord, we get in our minds, let's get Mohawks. And I'm not talking faux hawk. I'm talking Mohawk. So we asked another buddy of ours, hey man, will you, will you mohawk us? And I came out with a great mohawk. It was awesome. I called my mom. Mom, I, I got a mohawk. And then she says something to the extent, who do you think you are? Because my brother had asked me to be his best man at his wedding on Labor Day weekend that September. Six hour, my, my frontal lobe had not been developed. I had no, who do you think you are? I, I wasn't even thinking. I, I don't know. That question, though, who do you think you are? That's the question I want you to ask of Jesus. Because when he says, if anyone would come after me, and he's talking to you, he must deny himself and take up his cross. You need to ask the question, who do you think you are? Jesus, who do you think you are to require that of me? To renounce a self-centered, self-determined life. Who do you think you are? And the answer to that question, he's the son of man. He's your redeemer. He's your creator. He's your judge. He has every right in the universe to call you to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow him. Here's how much your Savior loves you. He will not suffer any rival in your heart for him in his rightful place. He won't suffer it. And so he's saying, if you're going to follow me, if you're going to call me master, you got to renounce all other masters, and you're your, you're your biggest challenge. What Jesus is talking about here in this deny himself and take up your cross, we can call this repentance. It's turning from your old way of living in order to turn to Jesus. It's saying no to your former way of life, living in darkness, living for what people living in darkness live for, and you renounce that. I, I'm not living that way anymore. Because I'm living for Jesus now. We can sum this up in Jesus saying, lay down your life. If you're going to come after me, you must lay down your life. And, and for those of us, this begins at conversion. 
When we hear the gospel for the first time, God's grace lights us up. We realize who Jesus is, what he has done, and we're like, yes, I will follow you. You lay down your life. You have no rights. It's a response to his extraordinary grace. And then for every day after that, you're laying down your life. This is the way of following Jesus. That last command, and follow me. He must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. I, we tend, as Christians, to want to just say, follow me. Jesus is calling you to follow me, and we leave out the deny part and to take up your cross part. We can't do that. Jesus doesn't do that. That's not loving people. But in order to follow Jesus, you must first lay down your life. That when we get to this command, follow me, it's easy to keep it vague. Jesus says, follow, I'll follow you. Whatever you say, Jesus, I'll do it most of the time. I want to help you think through a little bit more about what Jesus means by follow me. First thing is, to follow Jesus means to learn from Jesus. To, to listen to his words and to look at his way of life. Back in the first century when disciples followed their rabbis, disciples would follow their rabbis not simply just to hear the truth of their words, Disciples followed rabbis to see how the rabbis lived out the truth of their words. When Jesus says, follow me, he's calling you to a whole new way of life. The best place to see Jesus, to hear his words, to see his way of life, in your Bible are the Gospels. Gospel after Gospel. You hear the words of Jesus. You see the way he engaged with people. That's your savior. That's your master. That's the one who's calling you to follow him. That's who you're learning from. To follow Jesus means, first and foremost, to, to learn from Jesus. But to follow Jesus doesn't end with learning from Jesus, as though discipleship's just a classroom. We learn from Jesus in order to live for Jesus. We learn from Jesus to live for Jesus. In Matthew 11, Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. He says, verse 29, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am meek and lowly of heart. That yoke is a great picture of discipleship. We are to be yoked to Jesus, to learn from him, to walk with him in his ways. We live for Jesus. We don't learn from Jesus and that's it. We learn from Jesus in order to live for Jesus. We take in his words to live out his words. We make it our aim to please him. It informs the way we live. He has 
poured out his extravagant grace through the cross, and now we get to live this radical discipleship to Jesus, learning from him in order to live for him. And it's in order to become like Jesus. We learn from him to live for him, to become like him. In your living out of what you are learning, you become like him. You think like him, you speak like him, you engage others like him, you get angry at what he gets angry at, you delight in what he delights in, you become like him. There's this great passage in the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. The Apostle Paul writes this, And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, becoming like him, from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. How do we behold the glory of the Lord? Chapter 4, verse 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We learn from him to become like him. We, we, we learn, we live, we become like. So what is a disciple? A disciple is anyone who by God's grace is laying down their life to learn from, live for, and become like Jesus. All because we love him. His love for us and his transforming grace, it fuels our love for him. And we live that love out by laying down our lives, learning from him, living for him, and over time becoming like him. Brothers and sisters, that's his call on your life today. If any of you would come after him, you must lay down your life and learn from him, to live for him, to become like him. In verses 35 through 38, Jesus gives us his cost-benefit analysis. This is a big call. And in verses 35 through 38, Jesus says, this is why it's worth it. Remember, there's, who's speaking here? The creator, redeemer, and judge is speaking here. He's doing the math for us. If you know the scale of what he's calling us to, Jesus is saying, this is why it's worth it. I'm worth it. Jesus says in verse 35, for whoever would save his life, and what he's talking about there is whoever is trying to live a self-centered life for this present world who's trying to live this self-determined life out that is essentially saying no to me, you lose it. 
There's no salvation in that. But whoever loses his life, whoever lays down his life for him, for the gospel's sake, he's saved. Grace has come home. Only those who have experienced the extraordinary grace of God will respond in such a radical way. He goes into this cost-benefit analysis, 35, 36, and 37. And it's in verse 38, though, that he changes the language. And he starts talking about being ashamed. For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, we're living in that generation. We're living in the domain of darkness. For whoever is ashamed of me, what Jesus is saying there is, whoever who is choosing not to deny themselves and take up their cross to follow me. Whoever's insisting on their own way. He says, of him will the Son of Man, Daniel 7, 13 and 14, also be ashamed of when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. It's, it's a warning of judgment when he comes. Who you choose now matters. What Jesus is saying, you've got a choice to make between living your life for you and living your life for Jesus. And for Jesus, the decision is very clear. Live for me and live. So what is a disciple of Jesus? According to Jesus. Anyone who's done the math, who by God's grace is laying down their life to learn from, live for, and become like Jesus. Because you love him. You can think about it in four L's. Lay it down. Learn from Jesus. Live for Jesus. Become like Jesus, all out of a love for Jesus. This, this amazing grace poured out at the cross, it results in a radical discipleship to Jesus. For those of us who have come to know him, we've realized he's the treasure hidden in the field. And you sell everything you have to have that. Let me just hit a couple implications and we'll be done. Here's what this means for us as a church. As a church now, we have a common definition of what a disciple is, according to Jesus. Someone who, by God's grace, is laying down their life in order to learn from, live for, become like Jesus out of a love for him. We've got that now. We need to unite around it. We need to own it. We, we, and we can't conveniently leave out the deny yourself and take up your cross part. Nor can we stay vague on the follow me part. We've got to be clear. Secondly, you need to ask yourself this morning, 
Am I a disciple of Jesus according to his definition? Let me help you with that. Have you laid down your life for him? When? Are you learning from Jesus? What? Are you living for Jesus? Where? Are you becoming like Jesus? How? Assess yourself. Maybe today you've realized it's been a long time since I have said, I'm laying my life down for you, Jesus. Every morning, early on, I'm making a statement. I'm saying something to the extent of, Lord Jesus, my life is not my own. You've bought me at a price. I am gladly yours today. Will you join me every day laying down your life for Jesus? This gives us, too, a, a way to move forward together. It gives us a common way of talking about discipleship so that in our life groups, we can talk with one another about, you know what, last week, I didn't lay down my life until Friday. Or you can say, hey, man, I am seeing Jesus in you, brother. Keep on pressing on. I had a conversation with a sister this past week, and her life dramatically changed in 2008, and I was able to tell her, you've been changed. I can see it. We get to help each other follow Jesus. And of course, this helps us know how to tell others about Jesus and not leave out the small print. But to say to people, if you understand who Jesus is and what he's done, the response is radical. To deny yourself and take up your cross and to follow him. We talked about conviction one, why make disciples? Jesus, all around the globe, is making disciples. And today we've talked about conviction two, what is a disciple? Next week, we get to talk about how to make disciples. Let me pray. God in heaven, Lord Jesus, thank you so much that you are a risen Lord. You are our creator, our redeemer, and our judge. And this call that we're reading about is your call on us today. And we say yes to you, Lord Jesus. We gladly lay our lives down. We want to learn from you. We want to live for you. We want to be like you. We want to love you more. Make it so, Lord Jesus. It's in your precious name we pray. Amen.